Hi, I'm Dr. Matthew Muir. And I'm Dr. Nicole Rouse. Join us on Thursday, February the 29th, 2024 at 7pm Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time for our fireside chat as we explore our integrative approach to liver dysfunction, detoxification and dysbiosis in dogs and cats. We'll show you how you can gain better insights about your patient's liver function from biomarkers and gain more awareness around risk factors like diet, breed and chemical load. We'll also show you ways to individualise your approach to managing your liver patients. For more information and to register, please follow the link in the show notes. We'd love to see you there. Welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast, where we enlighten veterinary workers, animal lovers and pet parents about integrative approaches to veterinary medicine and pet health. Each month, we interview experts in their fields as they share cutting-edge science, clinical wisdom and inspiration. The Pure Animal Podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and returning to the podcast today is our very own Professor Caroline Mansfield, small animal medicine specialist. And today we're going to be talking about her approach to managing liver health. Hello, Caroline, and welcome back to the podcast. We're so happy to have you back with us. How are you today? Um, I'm very well. Thank you for having me having me back. It's been a little while, but it's it's nice to, it to talk about things again. Yeah, and we're talking about something quite different to last time. Today we're going to be honing right in on the liver, which is the flavour of the month for us here at Pure Animal at the moment. And given that you're um, an internal medicine specialist, I'd love to hear about what cases you actually see coming in your door and how that might compare to the general practitioner vet. Yeah, I think probably, I mean, obviously we, every case that we see has originated from a from a general practice, but we do tend to get, um, you, you know, I guess uh, maybe a narrower spectrum. So, you know, as we were sort of maybe chatting about before we actually did this podcast, there's a little bit of a difference, I guess, in what I see between dogs and cats. So with mm. cats, um, I'll quite often see um, inflammatory liver diseases, um, you know, such as mm-hmm. cholangitis or cholecystitis. And quite often that's um, secondary or concurrent to intestinal or pancreatic disease. Um, mm-hmm. And we also probably see, you know, we see some hepatic lipidosis. Um, so, yeah. uh, y- you know, usually it's secondary to something else that's caused that that cat to, to stop eating um, and occasionally hepatic lymphoma. But, but that kind of tends to be you know, some gallbladder disease, some gallbladder infections, um, um, biliary duct um, and hepatocellular inflammation in cats tends to be what we see mm-hmm. more, more commonly. In dogs, mm-hmm. um, we see a relatively large number of acute hepatopathies. Yes. Um, so, you know, often we don't know what's been caused that the toxic insult, although, um, uh, you know, I'm practicing in North Queensland at the moment, and and you know, there's some concern about some leptospir- leptospirosis post um, yeah, all the rain. Right. Um, yeah. And we also, but I also see congenital liver disease, um, so shunting, um, photosystemic shunts in puppies. Um, sometimes they're older yeah. by the time you diagnose it. So um, the presentation in those is more lack of liver function rather than you know what we typically think of as liver disease. And we're yeah. increasingly seeing gallbladder mucus 
seals. Um, I think it's an increasing prevalence um, in dogs as well. Why do you think it is increasing in prevalence? Um, it's a really good question and I wish that I knew the answer. Um, there, mm. there are some breed associations, um, uh, so um, Shelties and Border Terriers. And in Border Terriers, it's suggested that um, it's also potentially gluten associated. It's, you know, the Border oh, Terriers have a constellation of diseases that are potentially gluten responsive. And um, with Shelties, oh. they they have a gen- genetic mutation that may predispose. But in right. the other breeds that we even miniature schnauzers, which is the other predisposed breed that we see it, um, I don't know why it's more common now than it used to be because, um, you know, there is an association with like lipid disorders like cholesterol, high cholesterol and, and high triglyceride, which is often caused by hormonal disease. Yeah, um, hypothyroidism, but, isn't it? Yeah, um, but it's not really clear why the incidence now is greater than it was before. So, mm. you know, I think that's something that, that, that you know, there's quite a few people that are looking into and, and suspect that actually probably what happens is it's actually a, a motility disorder. So it's a gallbladder motility issue first. Um, and then if they've also got some other factors um, that are present, you know, that alters the bile composition, then then that, that bile kind of solidifies within the gallbladder and then they develop the gallbladder mucosils. So, um, yeah. but, but you know, why that, Why now? Like why more? I, I don't know. It's a, it's yeah. a really good question. I, think, I guess it's a, the similar sort of question with so many different conditions, <clears throat> why they increase over time and it's probably multifactorial and there's not really one thing you can kind of put your finger on. Yeah, and, you know, there's the question about whether it's because there's a, you know, higher use of ultrasound in practice, but I, uh, you know, that that enables it to be diagnosed. But I'm not, I don't really, not really sure that that absolutely answers it because it's such a unique problem and it's kind that it should have been reported on in postmortems, you know, um, decades ago. So, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure that I understand why. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Well, sorry for that little (laughs) sidetrack. I was just quite curious to hear why, why you thought. Um, so let's just go, go back a step and understand briefly Mm -hmm. what the liver actually does in the body and how important it is for overall health. And because it is so critical and has so many functions, um, what happens to overall health if its function is not optimised in the body? Yeah, so I, I guess I, I kind of refer to the liver as being like the superhero of, of all the organs and, um, <laughs> you know, because it, it has so many functions and it also has the capacity mm. to regenerate to such a, a great degree. I mean, most the most common function that, that people... Um, Think about, of course, is like the detoxification um, function that it, you know, de- yeah. detoxifies it, it, both endogenous, so produced within the body, as well as exogenous toxins or metabolites. Um, but it, it's also a really important um, contributor to digestion. So the production and excretion of bile um, mm-hmm. is really important for, for gut health and for allowing, um, you know, allowing appropriate digestion. Um, it produces a whole bunch of clotting factors, um, you know, inflammatory um, responses like globulin and albumin, so proteins like that. So it's that functional capacity. Um, It's also, you know, got a pretty good lymphoid and, um, uh, you know, um, erythrocyte production capacity as well. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. a it's kind of like a spare spleen and a spare bone marrow at yeah. times. So um, yeah. you know it does does have all of these um you know amazing functions. And I guess um in terms of like you know what happens if that 
function is not optimised. And and there's two different ways to think about it. There's like an unhappy disease liver where um, the function might not necessarily be altered in that, you know, like it's still producing things like albumin and it's still producing, you know, vitamin K, um, you know, clotting factors, and it's still functioning in that way. But because there's such um, marked inflammation and necrosis, it releases all of these um, releases all of these cytokines and, and causes all sorts of systemic disease as a result. So that's, you know, that's when they've got active liver inflammation. Yeah, um, yeah. If there's an obstruction of the the bile flow, um, you know, then obviously we have um, major um, issues and associations with, with gut disease. Um, but if they've got decreased liver function truly so that they're no longer able to be a storage space for glucose or produce albumin, then you you get a vast array of clinical signs associated with that, ranging from, you know, ascites if the albumin's really low to seizures if the glucose is low. Yeah, right. And what do you see if you have subclinical liver dysfunction that's, um, you know, perhaps the liver is in a state where it's regenerating but it's still <clears throat> yeah. had so some sort often, of impact? Quite often you don't see anything, to be fair. Mm. Like it's, it's quite yeah. often that's a diagnosis made um, you know, based on blood work and monitoring rather than um, clinical signs. With yeah. the benefit of hindsight, you know, owners can often say, well, yeah, they felt that, you know, the dog was just a little bit brighter or, you know, yeah. um, that there was just some, or, the, you know, there was just a change in the appetite of the cat. You know, they can there, there can be some really subtle things that are present. Yeah. Um, but when it's at that subclinical, um, you know, hepatopathy level, there's often... Um, there's often no localizing signs or signs of concern, and um, and I guess that's also part of why it's such a challenge to to treat um, in in mm. veterinary practice because often by the time it's diagnosed, um, you know the the progress has been quite advanced. Um, yeah, you know, and and you, you kind of you're not necessarily at end stage, but you're but you're not at the stage where you can prevent things from happening. Yeah, I know that typically it's it's stated in in texts and and papers that up to sort of seventy to eighty percent of the liver needs to be lost essentially to see clinical disease. Like it has such a huge regenerative capacity. Would you agree I with think, that? I think I think that that um, that number probably relates to lack of function, not so much lack of yeah. disease. So you can see signs of disease sure. before then, but you're probably not going to see like the drop in you know, the drop in and albumin function. and glucose in urea yeah. um, until it's around, I, I think, to be honest, it's probably even more than 75%. It's probably up around sort of 80 it's crazy, 90. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it is an amazing organ. I think superhero is a very apt name <laughs> for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But something that we really want to look after, obviously, is the liver. Yep. Um, yeah, and I know we'll get we'll get into that later on. But um, so it's quite a nice segue actually to see what, um, in your opinion, are the most common symptoms you get presented with when there is actually clinical signs of liver disease. Um, obviously, you know, there's things like jaundice and things that are quite starkingly obvious to an owner. But mm. what do you see other than that? Um, the, are the other signs quite vague? Yeah, the signs can be quite vague. So, so in cats, because for example, we're we're talking about it. Usually, we're talking about a different set of issues, um, and it's actually yes. jaundice is pretty uncommon, right? Until you get, unless you get really a, a really acute 
um, cholangitis. Um, mm -hmm. And those are the really sick cats where there's probably bacteria involved in that and they, they're pyrexic and they're inappetent and vomiting and then they become jaundiced, you know, within a couple of days of, of mm -hmm. that presentation. But often with the more chronic ones, um, so the chronic cholangitis or even, you know, gallbladder disease or um, you know, uh, hepatic lymphoma or well, hepatic lymphoma, they get jaundice, but probably not quite as quick. Um, it's just it, the signs are really quite nonspecific and vague. So they're often, um, you know, they may have some vomiting um, and that, but they're more often inappetent. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's just, you know, I, I don't like the acronym, but, but it's probably appropriate of NQR. So not quite right. Um, and that's typically oh, okay. more, yeah. more like what the, um, what the cats present initially. Obviously, if the disease yeah. progresses, um, things become more advanced, but that's often the initial presentation. Um, yeah, just that sort whereas, of malaise. Yeah, yeah. And you know, unfortunately in cats, it's not a very localising or specific sign. So there's a whole bunch of other things yeah. that we need to rule out before we focus on the on the liver. Um, and I guess then with dogs, it de again depends on what um, the cause is. So with like acute hepatitis and you know, or hepatotoxicities, the the signs are really quite profound. Um, and, yes, they're, they're quite often jaundiced um, and they're often vomiting a lot. They're quite dehydrated yeah. and really lethargic and it's really quite a severe presentation. Um, with yeah. the more chronic presentations, again, the signs are really quite vague and you don't typically get jaundice until quite advanced disease. Um, so, you know, with the chronic active hepatitis, um, you know, which is when you've got whatever the in, initial insult in the liver and then you get some fibrosis as a result and then you have a recurrence of the, the insult and more fibrosis and it kind of continues until you've actually decreased your liver liver mass. So you typically will get mm. like ascites um, either due to low albumin or pleural hypertension and you'll get that um, before you get jaundice. Um, Okay. And uh, yeah, and obviously, the other major differential when they're jaundiced is you want to make sure that they're not, um, you know, not anemic, and then they don't have hemolysis. But um, with yeah. the gallbladder disease, again, um, it depends. There's a range of of signs because they can be discovered incidentally. Um, they can be really sick, like a septic abdomen, if the gallbladder is infected. Um, yeah. You know, but or it can be abdominal pain and discomfort, um, which can sometimes happen. You know, because the gallbladder is distended and um, you know those pain receptors are, are stimulated. And then you have the congenital yeah, right. ones, <laughs> um, which are, also, <laughs> are even even more different. And so, like with congenital yeah. shunts, um, sometimes, like I've just seen a little dog recently that um, actually yesterday that presented because it had lower urinary tract signs, and so it had urate stones, um, you know, okay. which is a, a sign of, of shunting, um, you know, because the because of the liver production and you know increased urate um, in the urine as a result of the shunt, mm -hmm. um, and so that's one presentation. And but on questioning the the owners, this puppy's always been a little bit quieter than they would have expected for a puppy yeah. and more recently has kind of been doing just some vague neurological things that are a little bit um, out mm. of kilter and, um, you know, that's that probably that hepatic encephalopathy, um, you know, presentation, um, you know, and, and the dog's probably not a naturally quiet dog but it's like, you know, it's um, almost sedated because of, <laughs> of all those, um, you know, all those neurotransmitters and bacterial metabolites bathing the brain. 
Right. So is that how you, is that why you see those neurological clinical signs because of just everything that's not being, you know, removed properly by the liver, just bathing the neurological tissue? So, 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 yes, it's it's generally um, there's a couple of reasons about about why hepatic encephalopathy develops, but um, probably one of the major things is that there is a shift in the bacterial population in the in the gut, um, and then there's okay. an increase um, in production of particular bacterial metabolites um, from interesting, uh, you know, yeah, and that and then they go into the brain, um, and they cause like this, this, the GABA receptors are stimulated and, um, you know, which, we, which we know we often use when we want to, um, sedate animals. So, so yes, it does, mm. um, cause them to be a little bit brighter and I'm sorry, a little bit quieter and, and sedated. Sure. So is there such thing as a gut liver brain axis then knowing this yeah, or is this absolutely. only in yeah yeah <laughs> well yeah it's probably technically it's the gut brain axis but but definitely the um the you know the the gut um the gut bacteria is altered by um you know altered by the liver disease so yeah yeah interesting there's nothing that's not impacted by the i know by the gut <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, well, thank you. That's a that's a nice overview and a little reminder, you know, back in my university days because I, I never saw a case of a portosystemic shunt when I was practising, so it's been a long time since I was refreshed in my knowledge, so thank <laughs> you. Um, so let's jump into diagnosing liver disease. Um, just mm-hmm. briefly, obviously mo- most of the time we start with some bloods. Um, mm-hmm. When do you reach for the other sort of diagnostic tests? And how how often do you do that? Yeah, so I guess even when I'm reaching for the bloods, I'm you know there's sometimes a little bit um, there's some things that we can do a little bit differently um, in terms of you know like do we measure bile acids or we do a bile acid stimulation test and so on. Um, I often I often target my next steps based on how long the problem has been going because I guess what we're thinking mm-hmm. about with um, acute versus chronic is quite different. Um, and also whether, you know, I feel it's likely that it's going to be a congenital shunt. Um, and then also, I guess, the physical exam findings. So if there's abdominal pain, um, the size of the liver also can be quite, um, you know, quite a big clue because, um, mm. you know, with sort of end-stage liver disease or and congenital systemic shunts, the, the liver's small. Um, yeah. And, you yeah. know, if there's other active inflammatory or neoplastic disease, the liver is going to be enlarged. And so, you know, often you can tell that on um, on physical examination. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess after that, it, it you know, definitely imaging is, is going to be that yeah. next step. But it depends a little bit on what, um, what I'm thinking is most likely as to what type of imaging is. So if I don't think that, if I think a congenital anomaly is unlikely, then I'll probably elect um, ultrasound first. Um, mm-hmm. And that's definitely, you know, you can tell us the, you know, approximation of the size of the liver. It's not um, fantastic at, um, at that, but it, it can also look at, you know, the echogenicity and we can look at the gallbladder and follow the bile duct yeah. down. Um, yep. And then depending on what I think is going on, sometimes I'll sample the liver. I, you know, with cats, I'm quite... Um, comfortable that doing an aspirate is going to help me, um, you know, narrow down my my index of suspicion rather than you know than going straight for a liver biopsy. So quite yeah, often sure. an aspirate's um, nice enough, um, and quite often I'll culture the bile. I'll take a sample of bile for 
for culture in cats as well because of the incidence of, of you know, ascending cholecystitis. Yeah, yep. Um, yep. And then the, um, you know, if I do think that there might be a vascular anomaly, then then a CT scan is, um, you know, CT angiography is going to be um, the preferable one to do that. Okay, yep. And that's how you diagnose your shunts with yes. a CT? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what's your opinion on, because I know um, perhaps you don't see this so much in your practices that you work in, but what's your opinion on a patient coming in for an unrelated issue or having a pre-anesthetic screen and having elevated liver enzymes but no signs of clinical disease? Do you jump straight into exploring that as a possible you know, indicated that there is disease present and wanting to throw everything at it? Or do you wait and see or do you implement some supportive care and recheck? Like what's your approach as a specialist to that? Yeah, so that's a that's a big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> gen- <laughs> generally, generally this happens with dogs. So if I see increased liver enzymes in cats, I'm usually pretty, um, pretty uh, keen to investigate because it doesn't happen sure. just randomly, right? You know, there's not yeah. sort of non-liver disease that's going to cause that apart from hypothyroidism that will cause an increase in ALT. But, but you know, yeah. if you've got an increase, it's probably pretty significant in the cat. In dogs, I usually, I usually try and decide based on, um, you know, the rest of the clinical picture, like are the, you know, is the dog well? Is it unwell? Um, I like to check um, the urine. I mean, there's been a recent... Um, you know, recently reported syndrome of dogs of Labradors in Australia that have acute hepatopathies that also have a, um, a tubular issue. So they have glycosuria and those dogs respond 100% to a change in diet. So from whatever commercial mm. diet they're feeding and they've been fed a range to a home-cooked diet. Oh, right. Um, Interesting. And obviously if it's a... Um, you know, if they're if they're potentially, you know, maybe some clinical signs that the owner hasn't been that worried about, but are present, then, you know, then that might give me a greater index of suspicion to investigate. Yeah. Um, if the increase is is just in the cholestatic enzyme, so the ALT and maybe GGT, um, I'm less I'm less inclined to go for massive diagnostics unless they have other clinical signs. You know. Um, just because ALP, you know, it's a steroid isoenzyme um, and it can be increased in many non-liver diseases, you know, such as hyperadrenal cortisone, but also chronic mm. stress and disease. So if we're sort of screening for something else and there's an increase, I, you know, I won't ignore it, but I might not want to be quite so keen to act in it if the increase is mild, right? Yeah, um, so if that's the ALP, marked, you said? ALP, alkaline phosphatase, yep. yeah. If the, if yep. the increase is marked, then... No, then you probably need to start thinking about um, either repeating it in a week or two um, and, you know, and seeing what happens. Um, uh, otherwise, um, y- you know, otherwise starting to investigate further if it's a really massive increase. Yeah, but if sure. the increase is predominantly ALT, so alanine mm-hmm. transferase plus or minus AST, that suggests mm-hmm. that there's more of a hepatocellular component and that's... Yeah. Um, you know, unless the unless the dogs are receiving medications that could potentially trigger that, you know, they might if they're yeah. on ketoconazole or if they're on something else, then that might indicate that there is, um, you know, there is some kind of a primary problem. And those are the dogs that, if they're well, you know, and and it really is just an incidental discovery that for me would be yes, let's trial some liver anti 
you know, some some liver nutraceuticals, um, you know, yeah. and wait wait between two and four weeks and repeat and see whether yeah. they've come down or whether they're persistent. And probably if um, they're persistent, then then would start down the path of, of maybe doing some investigation for underlying disease. Yeah, sure. So if you've implemented some nutraceuticals and the liver enzymes have come down when you recheck, what's your plan mm-hmm. from then on? Do you continue on the nutraceuticals and periodically recheck or do you discontinue altogether? Um, so again, that's a really good question. I think if we, if you know that there's a potential inciting cause, you know, like there might have been a, you know, ingestion of something or some gastroenteritis or there might have been some medication or there's something that could have potentially triggered that, then there's definitely no need to continue with the nutraceuticals. Yeah. Um, but I probably would um, you know, again, repeat the blood work maybe a month a month after you've stopped it, um, yeah, and sure. then yeah. um, you know to make sure it hasn't rebounded. Yeah, um, that's good advice. Apart f- yeah, apart from um, that, the answer is I don't know because it really depends, right? Yeah, um, no. <laughs> and I, I guess um, they're not inexpensive. A lot of these nutraceuticals, and I and I'm not mm. sure that um, that it's always essential to keep them on, but. And I probably, you know, if we if they have to be on for more than a couple of months, then there's probably an under and you know, and if if we take them off and or the dog is still unwell, or there's mm. still evidence of liver disease, there's probably something else going on that we probably need to investigate more. Um, and I know I'm just sort of skipping ahead a little bit here, but what's your opinion on prescription liver diets, and when are you recommending any sort of changes to diet? with your patients. So these probably would be your di- diagnosed with something, patients, I would imagine. You don't typically yeah. reach for a liver diet if you're seeing just an incidental increase in enzymes, I would think. No, I don't I don't tend to reach for them in that case. Um, yeah. I just make sure that, you know, that, that, that they're fed a high quality diet and that potentially that they don't um, have an excessive protein, like an excessive protein load. Um, mm-hmm. But if they've got decreased liver function, if I'm worried about that, then then I think liver diets are, are highly advantageous. So most of the commercial products have got, um, you know, antioxidants that are added as well, which which could be, mm-hmm. you know, always um, going to be potentially beneficial. Um, you know, they've got fi- enough fibre that helps promote gut motility and kind of improve that as well as the, the altered sort of protein component. Um, but what's become a little bit more apparent recently is that um, we probably don't need to be quite as protein restrictive with liver disease. Yeah, as I was going to ask we that because I've read that yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's probably more about the biological quality of the proteins, probably yeah. more important than the actual um, the actual amount. Um, so, yes, I do give liver diets, um, you know, when we've got things like shunts um, or even secondary shunting and we've got sort of, you know, we're starting to get some end-stage liver disease, that's when I'll um, reach for the diets. Yeah, sure. Yep, that's that's exactly in line with what I've read recently as well. Mm. That um, because they are so protein restricted a lot of the time, perhaps they're not sort of recommended wide for you know for every case like they would have mm. been maybe ten years ago. Yeah, um, that's great. And moving into the nutraceuticals, can we talk a bit about what the specific ones are that you usually reach for in terms of ingredients um, mm-hmm. and how they actually help the liver in and what sort of cases they they really help and what cases they might not help yeah so for for a lot of them so i guess for me there's um 
four um, that I I think have probably been um, relatively well studied that I'm personally familiar with. So there's vitamin E, um, there's silymarin, which is milk thistle, Um, there's SAME, which is esadenyl methionine and I hope I said that right. Esadenyl methionine, yep. And then there's um, there's, um, ursodeoxycholic acid or USDA. Yes, Um, yeah. So out of those, I guess the the all of them potentially have some antioxidant um, capacity, you know, antioxidant actions, um, yep. you know, which may be protective against in acute hepatopathies or, or acute disease. Um, uh, each of them have a slightly different mechanism of action and vitamin E is probably a little bit more hepatoprotective than like cellular protective um, than silymarin or, um, or, or SAMI. Um, yeah. And then with um, ursodeoxycholic acid, which is like a form of bile acid, it's a weak um, kinetic, so it weakly stimulates the production or the um, contraction or con- contractility of the gallbladder. Um, right. okay. And it potentially alters the uh, gallbladder flow, like the bile acid composition. Um, so okay. uh, Ursofolk is something, it's very expensive as well. It's not something that I like to use willy-nilly, but um, I yeah. would think think about using that if we had, you know, biliary tract disease and as long as there wasn't, you know, like a biliary tract obstruction because, um, you know, no amount of medication is going to help that, that, that needs to be removed. But um, but if we, but that's when I start thinking about um, ursodeoxycholic acid. Um, yeah. For the others, they've often they've been like probably um, you have to be a little bit careful with vitamin E that you don't over supplement. But um, they've got a relatively high safety profile, um, and mm-hmm. they've been studied in a reasonable number of um, a reasonable number of conditions. But they've actually been really poorly studied in the clinical setting um, in mm. in veterinary patients. So. Um, you know, although we know that each of them are potentially protective against um, hepatic insults and toxins, um, it's uh, yeah, it's hard to know what their benefit is going to be uh, after that insult has occurred. So, are you um, so say you have a, a case that's actually had a clinical diagnosis? It's not one of those ones that you have an incidental increase and then you're just using a nutraceutical. Mm-hmm probably temporarily, but say you have a case that um, perhaps has a chronic liver disease, do you recommend these supplements for these cases long term um, or are you um, just sort of using uh, again, them again in the short term? It depends a little bit. Um, yeah. So, if, sorry, if we, if we think about dogs with chronic active hepatitis, then probably yes, they probably do play yeah. a role. Um, but, um, you know, I would always hope that I would have a liver biopsy that would um, confirm whether there's active inflammation, um, which obviously needs to be treated specifically, but also um, whether there's copper accumulation. And that copper accumulation mm. in liver disease can be primary or secondary. And, um, you know, so in terms of my list of priorities, if I've got inflammation, I'm going to treat that. If I've got copper accumulation, I'm going to treat that. And then, um, you know, if everything else is tolerated, well, then I'll use, um, you know, I'll use a, a combination of those those medications. But Quite, quite often it's um, you know is a little bit challenging because of the number of medications that you're then giving by then. Um, yeah, but no, definitely, yeah. um, if there's no active inflammation but there's fibrosis and you know necrosis, um, then I'll definitely use the um, you know I'll definitely use the nutraceuticals. Um, yeah, 
you know, yeah. and see how we go. And I'll and I probably will start off with Ursa Folk and then a combination of of the other three. Um, and then I'll probably would stop the Ursa Folk first, just purely because of its expense, and see yeah, whether sure. um, you know whether it's a, whether that makes a difference or not. So, do you recommend that even if there's primarily hepatocellular damage and not? cholestasis do you still recommend that yeah because quite often like yeah. it's it's really i mean it, i know in our in our heads they seem to be very separate functions don't they but um actually within the liver itself it's you know they're, they're quite anatomically linked um so it's yeah. very hard to have one disease without the other and sure. and um esophoc is shown to have a reasonable amount of anti-inflammatory antioxidant activity okay. um yeah and it, it's kind of it's kind of hard to know, but I, um, you know, when if there is a benefit to it, which of the benefits are present from it, um, but you know, I think there are. I think I probably would use the others um, over esophoc if I had primary hepatocellular disease, and I'd usually use sure. esophoc if when I'm worried about biliary tract disease, and and that yeah. doesn't come down to anything except just personal preference and and usually probably some financial pressures Experience. because there's, there's actually really little very little data out there for us to to rely on yeah sure no that that makes sense and when you're when we're thinking about pharmaceuticals so you mentioned you'll be treating inflammation if it's present obviously if there's some sort of infectious process then we you would be yes of course. culturing yeah. and, and using an appropriate antibiotic um what what um, pharmaceutical are you reaching for for an anti-inflammatory and for that copper accumulation as well? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll answer the antibiotic question first as well because if I'm if I'm worried, yeah. I mean, if, unless you've got something like leptospirosis, which is more of a specific treatment, but um, if you're worried about you know biliary tract infection, you want an antibiotic that's um, excreted in the bile, um, and most people. Um, tend to, you know, reach for metronidazole. And I, I'm not sure that it's absolutely necessary. I, I usually just use amoxicillin, um, okay. you know, particularly in cats. Um, yep. And then when it comes to anti-inflammatory medication, like the best drug that we have that's the easiest to give and remove and taper and titrate is prednisolone. But um, mm-hmm. that has the side effects of increasing liver enzymes um, yeah. and uh, also potentially increasing liver size. And so it's often one of those ones that I'm, I'm really quite, um, you know, unless I'm convinced it's going to be short term, um, you know, I usually don't use prednisolone. I'll usually usually use like in dogs something like cyclosporin and in cats um, chlorambucil. Okay. Um, and then for copper chelation, it's usually D-penicillamine. Okay, right. So, and yep. these are t- temporary usually and then you're rechecking frequently and trying to wean off yeah, most so, of these. So, yeah, so, yeah, you have to make sure with copper collation, for example, that you don't definitely don't um, over-collate um, yeah. and you'll just, yes, you'll be using that um, like periodically. Sometimes they have to be on it chronically, um, particularly if it's if the copper toxicosis is the primary problem. Um, you know, we we see that in some breeds um, more than others, yeah. but um, but yeah, generally generally that's required lifelong. Um, but you want oh, right. to titrate okay. it down to the lowest possible dose. And how does that then impact zinc levels in the body if you're playing with the copper? It can impact. Is that something that's so you monitored? Just, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You absolutely you need to to, to monitor monitor all of those divalence and make sure that there's no yeah. Um, issue. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, that's great. And I know this is um, one of your favourite topics to research and to talk about, but l- let's talk about how the gut microbiome okay. can impact the health of the liver. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
just from a you know for a healthy liver but also in a diseased state um what's the what's the interaction and the relationship between the two um I'd love to hear your thoughts well really really I mean they're intimately involved aren't they and so when you when you think about um you think that one of the liver's major jobs is to detoxify and metabolize bacterial metabolites um you know which are produced from the intestine um they also Mm -hmm. produce the bile acids which um alter and impact um you know impact the gut microbiota so the so the um, presence of bile acids within the intestine actually have a direct impact on um, the health of the gut. Um, so it's it's shown, for example, that like some particular bacteria are really good at metabolizing bile acids and utilizing bile acids, um, and some aren't. And so if you have an, a deficiency or an imbalance in that, then you can actually have like an abnormal profile of bile acids and that can cause diarrhea and, and, and issues within the gut as well. Interesting. Um, and then when you look at it on the flip side, we've actually, like when we treat liver disease, particularly hepatic encephalopathy, we, we actually manipulate the microbiome. We've been manipulating the microbiome for decades without probably realising that that's why, why we're doing it. So, you know, mm. we give lactulose, um, which... Uh, shifts yeah. the um, colonic bacteria, um, you know, so that there's less urease-producing bacteria, um, and then um, you know use metronidazole as well to try and control those um, hepatic encephalopathy signs because again it it knocks out a bunch of bacteria that potentially um, could contribute to the hepatic encephalopathy. So. You know, so yeah, it's very yeah. Um, intimately, um, and that's probably one of the reasons why, when those congenital diseases that are really, um, you know, I think having diets that are that are, have a high quality um, fiber um, are really yeah. important because it improves that motility and tries to revert the bacteria back to normal. Yeah, for for sure. And if you are treating with metronidazole, are you then making sure that you're repopulating with probiotics afterwards, or prebiotics, or both? Um, possibly. Again, it depends on th- that change. So, so we always always want to make sure that people know they use the lower dose of metronidazole liver disease. So, you know, because metronidazole okay. itself is is metabolized by the liver. Um, and so, do I use probiotics? Um, I I don't tend to, but there is an increasing body of evidence to suggest that that probiotics um, and prebiotics, so so both or a combination of both. Yep. Um, are actually quite useful in managing hepatic encephalopathy. So whether as a primary management okay. or whether to repopulate the gut, um, you know, I think um, I, I think we have a lot of issues with trying to repopulate the gut because it can take weeks for it to return to the same yeah. functionality. So, um, you know, we even if there even when we look at things, we I think often that um, probiotic supplementation tends to be more short term. Um, mm. And we probably should be thinking after a metronidazole, we should be thinking weeks to months rather than, you know, yeah. a couple of weeks. Yeah, because I know there's some data to show that after metronidazole, the um, the dysbiosis or the, the microbiome never ever sort of recovers to that previous balance after yeah, even one course. I saw some data recently. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very individualised. So some dogs can bounce back mm. within a week and some, you know, take, take months. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, I know we're getting close to time, Caroline. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share on this topic, which is the superhero organ of the body, the liver? 
Um, I guess, like, even no, um, yes, no, um, probably because <laughs> it because it has so many functions and so many different things. I think um, I think we tend to um, I think in in veterinary medicine, there's just not quite as much work at looking at the things that I think would be really helpful for them, like. Um, you know, like looking at, at nutraceuticals and, you know, like let's pick a disease rather than trying to just say all liver disease and let's see whether it's really, um, you know, really beneficial. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people treat liver disease, um, but they don't actually die, you know, def- define what that liver disease is. And I, so I think, I think the nomenclature, nem- nem- oh, I can't say talk properly, Nomenclature, the terminology, yeah, terminology um, that's used to describe liver diseases probably needs to be made more simple um, and clear. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that's going to help the profession as well because say, well, you know, for this disease which is you know has X Y Z, then this is what we recommend. And I think there's so much yeah. you know airy fairy stuff around in terms of even defining what the conditions are. Sometimes I mean sometimes yeah. it's straightforward. But but sometimes it's really difficult to to distinguish between them. I think, um, you know, I think that would I think that will help. Um, yeah, and, and help sort of drive, you know, better clinical research and clinical outcomes in the future too. I love that. That's a really nice way to to wrap things up, um, and a message out there to everyone listening that um, this is something that Caroline really believes will will help you all. So hopefully, in the future, we see a little bit little bit more simplifying and um, maybe some more sort of standard protocols of how to you know go through a stepwise approach of diagnosing and treating all of these different conditions rather than as yeah. you say um, you know all the airy fairy information that you know, perhaps isn't all evidence-based and in line with current recommendations from specialists. Yeah, yeah. It's not even that. It's more the, like, trying to figure out what the actual thing is that we're treating in the first place. And I know most, you yeah. know, because, you know, even with liver biopsies, sometimes we don't know. Um, and, you miss it. And you know, yeah. that can be really frustrating because you probably, I probably only managed to convince, you know, 25% of my clients to go ahead with liver biopsies, you know, when, um, just because it's a relatively invasive procedure. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. You know, and, and out of those 25%, there's maybe 25% of those 25% that I, I feel that it makes, a, it's made a big difference to, you know, changed how I've, um, I would have approached um, the management. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I just think we need better definitions about, about what everything is and a bit more consensus and, and probably more alignment with um, what's actually seen in practice, um, what's seen clinically, yeah. rather than you know basing it on you know um, a lot of the classifications are histological and and you know that's really important, yeah. but it's not the only it's not the only thing. Yeah, no, understand. And also in line with as you say, you know that the increase in the mucosils and everything like that that mm. you're seeing lately, of of course, everything needs to constantly be refreshed and looked at and hopefully there's someone out there who's going to take take on this job maybe you'll be involved <laughs> in the classification <laughs> we can hope, right like we can dream yeah yeah absolutely oh thank you so much for joining us again caroline i hope you have a really nice afternoon and we'll talk to you again soon great thank you thanks for listening to this month's episode of the pure animal podcast i'm dr sarah howard make sure you tune in next month where we'll be talking to dr matthew muir about fecal microbiome transplants. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for individualised veterinary advice, and listeners should ensure to seek advice from their pet's own veterinary professional.